I cannot describe just how much I love my children. I love them so incredibly much. There's nothing I want more in this world than to come home and embrace my bride and my babies and hold them close and hug them. And this is not because of anything that my children do for me. If anything, they're expensive little bums. They need to get jobs. They're born with a sin nature. They bicker and they fight. And it's all that my bride and I can do sometimes just to keep them on the straight and narrow, to teach them self-control instead of their default nature of selfishness. They are this way because I am this way, that my bride is this way, that you are too, that we're just born with a sin nature. You, you don't have to watch the news long to see evidence of the fallen nature of man. Romans chapter three, which is where we're at in our study in the book of Romans, is going to spend the first 20 verses really driving home the fact that mankind is just born depraved, that we are not actually neutral in matters of morality, but the very lens through which we view the world is stained by our sin nature. Now, my skeptical friend, please don't tune this out. Rather, give it a chance because when you get to verse 21, there's incredible news. There's the best news in the universe that though you and I are sinners by our very nature, we can be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. This makes Christianity unique among all the other worldviews. Other worldviews would try to give you tools by which to redeem yourself, to climb out of your own grave. But Christianity acknowledges that you're in your grave because of your sin nature that makes you spiritually dead by default. Given to our own devices, we'll just seek more and more sin and greater and greater depravity. But the intervention of the grace of God upon our lives makes us more like him. We define goodness itself as that which is consistent with the nature of God. Therefore, God's nature is the rubric by which we understand goodness. And we, by our nature, are born with proclivities unto sin, but he, by his perfect holy nature, can redeem us. I love my little sinners, my children, my family. And God loves sinners like us. Even while we are sinners, Christ died for us. This is the greatest act of love ever. So what is a holy God to do when his beloved creation falls into sin? He establishes the payment for sin through the law of the Old Testament, pays that sin in full himself in the New Testament upon the cross. And now through faith in Jesus Christ, you, though you're a sinner like me, can be made righteous. So bear with me because it's hard news for the first 20 verses, but there's grace coming at the end. First 20 verses are gonna expound pretty brutally upon the fallen state of mankind. And I pray that this actually allows you to make sense of the world around you. You can see men shedding blood and you can see men betraying men. You see people whose mouths are open graves. You know who they are. They're under spotlights and they're on the news. I mean, you could, you could see what's in this text in the world all around us. And if you're brutally honest, if the Holy Spirit brings conviction for sin, you could see that in your own reflection. Sorry, I know that's offensive, but this is, this is the good news. When you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for your sin, you acknowledge the fact that you and I together, because of our sin nature, we have let God down. There and only there can you appreciate the grace that God has poured out for sinners like us. I know that some of you may have come from a denominational background that, have, that may have riddled you with a sense of shame 
on yourself for your past sin. I want to distinguish between shame, which I believe is satanic, and conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is quite godly. As we go through verses 1 through 20, I don't want you to feel deep shame and hopelessness. I don't want you to go through these verses and say, yep, that's me, I am worthless. Because that satanic shame devalues you who are a creation of God, made in the image of God. You are an image bearer of God. It is not right for you to hate yourself. That deep shame also doesn't bear good fruit. That deep shame, in fact, ultimately is gonna lead to the ethic that says, hey, I might as well just continue in sin. I've already sinned this much. I'm a filthy, shameful sinner. I might as well just keep on sinning. Make the distinction between satanic shame and godly conviction. Because conviction for sin brings you face to face with your sinful nature, but then draws you from that darkness into marvelous light. By God's kindness, you are drawn to repentance from sin. Godly conviction leads to repentance from sin. Godly conviction bears to, it leads to good fruit from your, even, even your past sin. As you repent from sin, you invite others into the same grace that you found in Jesus. Godly conviction means that I'm never going back in my grave again. So make that distinction between satanic shame and godly conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love my adorable little sinful children and God loves us. Adorable little sinners in his sight. Look at chapter three of Romans with me. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. This is a note of context. He just finished chapter two talking about circumcision, which was by law, the requirement of the Old Testament, but it's not a requirement anymore. In the Old Testament, it was a sign of the covenant that God had with his people. But now that new sign of the covenant is baptism. So Paul, as he will throughout the book of Romans, asks questions and then answers them. It's pretty amazing. It's, it's quite perfect. He's able to like read our minds. He'll make a theological point and then naturally address the very first question that comes up. You're gonna see the words, absolutely not, come up over and over again throughout Romans. Should we go on sinning that grace may abide? Absolutely not. Right? What, what advantage is there to being a Jew? It's considerable in every way. That's what he's doing here. So when he talks about circumcision, he's referring to the Old Testament law. So what advantages the Jew have or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they, meaning the Jewish people, were entrusted with the very words of God. That's incredible. They received the 10 commandments. We as a church saw this in Deuteronomy chapter six. They received the words from God and they were stricken with deep humility. They said, who, who in the world has ever heard from God and lived? Though we are sinful, we have received word directly from God in the 10 commandments. What advantage does the Jew have? Well, you were the direct recipients of the very words of God. That is considerable. God is not done with the nation of Israel. He is absolutely using them in profound ways. They are the chosen vine upon which the engrafted branches of the Gentiles may be found in Christ. We see that God is not done with Israel because of the book of Romans. We see that God is not done with Israel because of the book of Revelation, prophesying a massive coming revival, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel to be saved. So there's no, there's no disadvantage to becoming a messianic Jew. There's no, it doesn't nullify the past advantage of having been a part of God's chosen covenant people. 
This is, this is why Paul writes in Romans to explain how God is the sovereign author of truth and he is the judge of all of us. We are free to disbelieve and we are culpable for that. He sovereignly elected Israel as his chosen people so that now all Gentiles may call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. This is the basic theme that runs the length of the book of Romans. Verse three, what then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. Some of you may have come from a denominational background that said that because you've, because you've blown it, because you've fallen back into old habits of sin and you, and you went back into the muck and the mire, you stepped back into your grave for a moment and dabbled in sin once more, though you profess Christ, that you, you've lost your salvation, that God has discarded you. He's not gonna be faithful to you anymore. Would you consider what Paul writes here regarding God's faithfulness to his people of Israel? Your unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. We've seen in the book of Ephesians, Paul write a picture of the gospel as parallel to marriage in which he, God, is the bridegroom and we, the church, are his bride. Even if the bride, like Hosea's bride, is unfaithful, he, the bridegroom, is ever faithful. Your unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. Your salvation is in God's hand and nothing can snatch you from his hand. It rests upon the righteousness and faithfulness of God, not upon your good behavior. Like we saw in Ephesians, he has given you the Holy Spirit as a down payment, guaranteeing your salvation to come. So your unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. He just quoted Psalm 51. My skeptical friend, my, my true hope here is that you would come to pray these words this way. He just quoted Psalm 51, which is what David prayed after being confronted on his sin. David committed adultery and then committed murder to cover up his adultery. He forsook his throne. He lost his anointing. He stepped way out of line. He was, he was once the, the, the young buck who slew Goliath. He was a man after God's own heart. He was God's chosen and anointed king. And then he just lost it all and fell utterly from grace. And his perfect response after being confronted by the prophet Nathan is Psalm 51. He confesses sin overtly. And he says of God, these words quoted by Paul in Romans 3, you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. He acknowledges that he has sinned and God is the judge. This is where you can appreciate the grace when you acknowledge that you failed and that God's the judge. Verse five, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? This is a question being asked by culture today. In fact, my skeptical friend, you may have had objections to the biblical narrative of God pouring out wrath upon sin. I even watched Bill Maher's documentary, Religulous. I, I know that this is a reason that people have for not believing in God. You look at the story of the flood where God poured out his wrath upon mankind and he poured out his wrath for sin. But even while he poured out his wrath, he provided deliverance and mercy and grace through the ark, saving just a few people. But the idea that God would wipe out almost all of humanity is off-putting to you. And so you think it's unjust. In fact, you might even use that as a reason to disbelieve. My skeptical friend, just for a moment, would you consider the structure of that argument and see that it is fallacious? I don't like this, therefore it's untrue. 
This is a form of the propter hoc fallacy. Disliking it doesn't make it untrue. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Paul just asked a question that I believe is commonly asked by people who have a bone to pick with Christianity, have a difficult time accepting the Bible. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not, verse six. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? See, the book of Revelation is violent and it's violent because it is God beating up the bad guy. The, the people who receive the most violence in the book of Revelation are death himself, the devil himself, the Antichrist, the bad guys. It's violent because God has wrath for sin. In your heart of hearts, you have this outcry for justice. You see injustice in the world and you want justice to be done. You therefore need to depend upon God as the judge. You need God to have wrath because if God doesn't have wrath, the bad guys will get away with it and never answer for anything. And if you're brutally honest, likewise, you'll understand everything that's wrong that's ever happened in your life, every injustice that's ever come upon you ultimately is a result of somebody's sin, yours or somebody else's. And if you're brutally honest, you want justice to be done to other people for their sins, but not to you for your sin. When we cry out for justice, we need to make sure that we're being just. When you cry out for justice, remember that the judge has wrath. And because of our sin, we are right in the crosshairs of that wrath. Is God unjust to inflict wrath upon unrighteousness? Absolutely not. For otherwise, how could he judge the world? Continue in the text with me. But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. This ethic, let's do evil so that good may come, was exactly the ethic of the corrupt Russian monk Rasputin, who believed that the more wicked things that he did, the more grace would abound. Rasputin should have brushed up on some Romans chapter three. Continue in the text with me. Verse nine, what then, are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. That was flagrantly offensive to the original Jewish readers because they looked down upon Gentiles. Gentiles never obeyed the Old Testament law. Gentiles never abstained from eating shellfish. Gentiles cut the hair on the sides of their head and wore clothing made out of two types of fabric. Gentiles never obeyed the Old Testament law. And now Paul is confronting Jews and Gentiles alike for all of our sin. You can see this ancient practice of Judaism with its adherence to Old Testament laws come up again, especially for believers who lived at the transition of the covenants, especially the original recipients, the original audience of the book of Romans. This was a hard pill for ancient Jews of the first century to swallow. You're no longer bound by these Old Testament works of the law. In fact, none of those works of the law are gonna save you. None of them make you any more righteous. Now it is just by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone that makes us righteous. That was difficult. That was a hard adjustment to make. That's a massive paradigm shift in the way that you think. This is part of the reason why the book of Romans was written in the first place. He's showing how both Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners. But in our modern context, we can sometimes fall prey to the same legalistic thinking. Legalism is the idea that you can obey lists of rules and laws and make yourself more righteous. We may not want to adhere to Old Testament dietary laws, but there are Christians likewise today who will abstain from things that God hasn't forbidden. And they think it makes them more righteous. That's legalism. Or they'll try to do extra credit things that they think increase their standing with God that God never required. That's legalism. 
You see the same thing at work in, in other faiths like Mormonism through the Book of Mormon that will add tasks onto the Bible. If you do these tasks, you'll become more righteous and even become a God yourself one day. There's nothing that you and I could do that would offset the sin we've committed. There's nothing you and I could do that would transform our own sinful hearts. Legalism does not change the heart of the sinner. Legalism does not make the sinful one righteous. Every last one of us has sinned. So Paul's about to give us this barrage of like five ancient texts, largely from the Psalms, highlighting the innate sinfulness of mankind. This is one of those things that makes Christianity unique among worldviews. It's gonna highlight the sinfulness of mankind, right? It's not a self-help plan. It's not something that makes you more righteous. Actually, it begins with acknowledging your own depravity. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is uh, full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nobody is actually neutral. Everybody is innately sinful. There's a common stat that I've seen thrown around and written and published around it, that the majority of wars have been committed in the name of religion. Everybody wants to aim this at Christianity specifically because of the Crusades, for example. Crusades should never have happened. They were a result of manipulation. Some of them were retaliatory in nature and they were all held by the Catholic church who withheld the word of God from the people. In fact, according to the Encyclopedia of Wars and the Encyclopedias of Wars, 7% of all wars have been committed in the name of religion. And if you remove Islam from that, only 3% have been committed in the name of religion. In fact, see Mao, see Stalin, see Lenin, most historic acts of violence have been done in the name of atheism. It's because we, by our nature, are just sinful. Our mouths are open graves. We are swift to shed blood. We will do precisely the will of the devil while professing not to believe in him. Isn't it funny, the modern sad state of official atheism. Did you know this? Anton LaVey actually started the Church of Satan as a club for atheists. But because he couldn't get tax-exempt status like the church, he decided to make it a church for Satan. He wrote his satanic Bible. I've read the whole thing. It begins with this critique of Christianity along the lines of the seven deadly sins, which aren't actually biblical, by the way. It's a Catholic construct, but he posits that as the whole ontology of Christianity and then proceeds to provide this manifesto on secular humanism that's punctuated by these weird like ceremonial rituals, Enochian keys. I don't know why they named their weird language after Enoch. He was a really godly guy in the Old Testament. I once asked the Satanist about that. He said, I don't know. <laughs> but then there are all these ceremonies and rituals and hexes that are all kind of permutated throughout this secular humanism manifesto, a manual on morality uh, from an atheist worldview. That is very much the sad, stat, uh, sad status of LaVey's atheism. It is doing precisely the will of Satan while pretending not to believe in him. And even then, some people have utterly misconstrued LaVey's work and actually quite literally do worship demons openly. By our very nature, we will do exactly what Satan wants us to do, even while professing not to believe in him. 
This is the default behavior of mankind and has been historically across millennia. We will shed blood. We will curse. We will not seek after God. We will not try to redeem ourselves. Ancient wars are actually all one big giant testament to the depravity of mankind. My atheist friend, the unavoidable end of your worldview is nihilism. We came from absolute nothingness. We go to absolute nothingness, which means that everything in between is totally meaningless. And yet, you know, you know, when you look at your child, life has meaning. You know that love is not an illusion, that you truly love people. You know that morality is written on your heart. It's not an illusion. It's true. It's real. It's raw. Would you consider the left or our own devices We are in fact sinful. And if the Holy Spirit of God is bringing conviction to your heart right now, you become self-aware. And it is by that brutal self-awareness that we can actually appreciate the grace that God pours out. By our very nature, we are sinners. But by God's holy nature and grace, he provides a way for us to be righteous. And that's what comes up in the text. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. Who's subject to the law? Every last one of us. In chapter two of the same book, Paul just got finished explaining this. God revealed the law directly to Israel, but for Gentile nations, it's written upon our hearts. This is why you can find an isolated society separated from everybody else. And you can see that they have laws against murder, laws against theft. It's because even though they didn't receive the law of God in the Old Testament, that law is on their hearts. This is where the conscience comes from. It's why we have this remarkable consistency in our basic convictions that all seem to line up with the Ten Commandments. Even if you've never read the Ten Commandments, in the marrow of your bones, you will have inclinations that make you think God's righteousness is true righteousness. God's nature, therefore, is the rubric by which we define goodness. And when you act in a way that is good, you're acting more like your creator, God. Who is subject to the law? Everybody. Everybody. Every last one of us. If you can see the speed limit sign, you have to abide by it. So here's the law of God. Either you received it as a Jew or you have it written on your heart as a Gentile. Every one of us is subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Every mouth is shut, meaning nobody, nobody can make the case for his own righteousness. All right, you could take your child, wrap them in bubble wrap, put a helmet on them, never let them outside and block out all the evil influences of the outside world and your child will still find a way to invent sin. Why? Because it doesn't just come from the outside influences. Your child has a sin nature. You were born with the same sin nature. Every last one of us is born sinful. Every last one of us is under the law. Nobody could then go before God and make our case and defend our righteousness. Rather, this this text shuts our mouths. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the least understood three chapters in the whole Bible, takes the Old Testament law and shows us how drastically short all of us fall from it. I've read everything that Richard Dawkins has written about this, and he still doesn't know what the Sermon on the Mount actually is. Jesus is leaving the audience utterly bummed. He goes systematically through Old Testament laws and some other laws from the Talmud, and shows us how every one of us falls miserably short of the standard. The most righteous guys in town were the scribes, the Pharisees. 
And he actually says, you have to be more righteous than them or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He even goes so far as to say, be perfect. And everybody's hands are just go up. I, I, I could never do this on my own. That's the point. That's the intent. The intent of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five through seven, was to establish the necessity of the coming crucifixion. Here's Jesus in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these, thing, these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Every last one of us by our own unrighteousness falls drastically short of the standard of perfection that is required to get into heaven. And then in his very, the very next chapter, he lays, this, he lays the standard even farther out of reach, telling everybody, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Not one of us could plead our case on our own righteousness before God. The common colloquial understanding, especially in the US, seems to be, I think God will let me into heaven because I'm a good person. But according to this text, there are no good people. We're all sinners by nature. Even grandma has sin, man, believe it. <laughs> every last one of us, every last one of us has sinned. Look at verse 20. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because knowledge of sin comes through the law. You cannot make yourself more righteous by works of the law. My legalistic Christian friend, you could abstain from things that God hasn't forbidden all you want. It's not gonna make you more righteous. You could add tasks onto the Bible and do every last one of them. They're not gonna make you more righteous. There is only one way to be saved, only one way that is through Jesus, by grace, grace, grace alone, by mercy alone, not through any righteous act that we perform. It is only the grace of God. One day, scandalously, we sinners will walk the streets of gold in heaven and every last one of us there, not one of us could say, I'm here because of my own works. Every last one of us will just be able to say, it's only because of Jesus, it's only because of Jesus, it's only because of Jesus that I'm here. It is all of grace and nothing short of grace, 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 grace upon a sinner like me. God, have mercy on a sinner like me. That's the only hope I have. There's not a thing I could ever do to make myself more righteous. Shut your legalistic mouth. Try not plead the case for your own righteousness. See Matthew chapter seven for people who try to do that in judgment before God. Every mouth is shut because we all know we are subject to the law. We all know we've fallen short of the law. And so every last one of our mouths is shut before God in judgment. No one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law because knowledge of sin comes through the law. By the law, the Old Testament of God, like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, it shows us how drastically short we all fall. But now... Now comes the grace, all right? Now comes the good news. Look at verse 21 with me. But now, apart from the law, that's good, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Here it is, the greatest news in the universe. 
The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God was fully within his prerogative to pour out his wrath upon Adam and Eve in Eden upon the very first sin. But instead he looked over every one of these sins that was previously committed. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews says, it's impossible for those things to take away sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All that was just the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, overlooking all the sins past committed. And there upon the cross, Jesus is the atoning work for everybody who believed in him before he existed. And now everybody who believes in him since he has walked upon the earth. He existed in eternity past, eternity future. From our perspective, he is the the word of God who was in the beginning, who's created all things, who sits in victory over our sins in the future. And now we are saved by the same Messiah whom the Jews once anticipated. They are saved by their anticipation. We are saved by our remembrance and our belief in Jesus Christ. Both Old Testament and New Testament believers are saved by the same sacrifice on the same cross. And it's Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice and overlooked in his restraint the sins previously committed God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So because of this righteousness of God, he is perfect. He has paid the full price for sin himself. And now loving his adorable little sinners, mankind, he can be with us forever in heaven without having compromised his integrity. He set the price for sin by the law. He paid it himself upon the cross. And so now without compromising one iota of his own standard, he gets to be with us forevermore. How beautiful is that? I love my adorable little sinful children. God loves you, you adorable little sinner. And he has paid by his blood upon the cross, the full price for your sin. And if you would believe in Jesus, you would have that righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is by grace alone, mercy alone, faith alone in Jesus. That is the righteousness of God. I'll read it from the text again. It's verse 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's by this work that God is righteous and declares righteous those who have faith in him. So if the Holy Spirit of God has gripped you by the heart right there, sitting there because of this outbreak, right? Because of what's happening right now with the coronavirus spread, you have stumbled upon this video because a member of Highlands Community Church shared it on social media. And now you're watching this, sitting in your pajama pants, having your whole world wrecked. I know what that's like. I wanna invite you into the family of God, that mercy and grace that you're feeling. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, that there is righteousness for you if you believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. I want you to be declared righteous by God. And I want you to come and be baptized at Highlands Community Church on Easter. Let us know today. Give your life to Jesus today and come be baptized at Easter in your brand new family of God. So I'm gonna lead you in a prayer of just five Bible verses. Highlands Community Church members, you know these five verses. You go through them with me, okay? This is your refresher. I want you to pray with me, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, like you do right now, 
would not die, but have everlasting life. And then we're gonna pray one of the verses we covered today, Romans 3, 23. You're gonna confess we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want you to pray Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This faith that you have is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Nobody else, nobody else went to the cross. Nobody else resurrected from the dead. Nobody else even claimed to be the truth. But Jesus said in John 14, six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So just tell Jesus you believe him. And then Romans 10, nine, only verse in the whole Bible that says, if this, then you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Pray with me these verses out to God and then come and be baptized in your new family right here. God, I believe, I confess. You love the world so much. You gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, when you yourself said that you are the way and the truth and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. So right here and now, I confess with my mouth by the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus is Lord. Would you say Jesus is Lord right now out loud? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.